theguardian.co.uk. Have you always wanted to write a novel, a history, a short story, your epitaph? Want to know how successful authors do it? It's all in a new Guardian book. I'll tell you more at the end of this podcast. Hello, welcome to the Guardian Children's Books podcast. We are David Armand, who wrote The Boy Who Swam With Piranhas. And Oliver Jeffers, who drew the pictures for it. And here's a section from the book. This is um, when Stanley Potts, the hero of the book, he's run away from home, he's joined a fair, and at the fair, for the first time, he comes to find someone called Pancho Perilli, who has a lethal water tank. They weigh their way through a crowd towards a blue trailer. The blue trailer's wrapped in blue tarpaulin, and a huge name is written there in gold. Pancho Perilli. A few people speak to their peers they pass by, Hello, young Stan. How do, Natasha? Stan hardly hears them. His eyes are on the trailer, on Pancho's name. He takes Natasha's hands and leads her forward. He feels like he's been drawn to this place. He shivers with excitement and he holds Natasha's hand tight. Come on, he says. Stay with me, please, Natasha. She whispers that she will. Then there's a hush and suddenly there's Pancho himself standing beside the trailer. He's wearing a blue cape that's fastened at his throat with a golden cord. There's a pair of blue goggles on his head. He looks into the crowd and he sees Stan there and he smiles and the smile makes Stan even more excited. Stan leads Natasha closer to the front of the crowd, so close they could almost reach out and touch Pancho Pirelli. Welcome, murmurs Pancho. Then his face hardens as he turns his eyes to the crowd. My name, he says into the hush is Pancho Pirelli. People giggle, sigh and smile. Pancho raises his hand. I am here, he says, to touch the teeth of death for you. I am here to look into its eyes for you. I am here to dance with it for you. Do it, Pancho, somebody cries from within the crowd. And other voices start yelling, Do it, Pancho! We love you, Pancho! You're a madman, Pancho! You're crazy! You're balmy! You're wonderful! Do it for us, Pancho Pirelli. Pancho lets the voices go on for a moment. Then he reaches up to the blue tarpaulin that's wrapped around the trailer. He tugs and the tarpaulin separates like curtains on a stage. And Stan's jaw drops open. For there, behind the tarpaulin, is clear water. The sun's shining down on it and there's a shoal of fish swimming elegantly in it. The whole trailer is a fish tank. And the fish inside? Piranhas! gasped the crowd. Pancho Pirelli's perilous piranhas. Pancho turns. The voices fade. These, he says, are my piranhas. The fish are rather pretty, oval-shaped, silvery grey, a flush of red on their cheeks and lower jaws. Each one is about the size of a child's head, no bigger than that. Stan stares. Piranhas, he whispers to Natasha. He knows, as most people do, their fierce reputation. These are the lethal fish of myth and legend, the fish that will strip a man to the bone in seconds. But these fish, they seem so tame, so calm. Can they really be piranhas? They aren't piranhas, somebody yells. They can't possibly be piranhas. Pancho smiles. Of course they couldn't be piranhas, he said. Would you like to dip your hands into the tank to test them out? He walks towards and mingles with the crowd. 
How about you, madam? Are you, sir? People laugh. They back away. They let Pancho through. Stan watches the fish suspended so beautifully in their crystal clear water, with their fins and tails propelling them elegantly forward, their mouths opening and closing, as if they're saying, Oh, 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 oh. Oh, you, young sir, comes the voice from his side. It is Pancho, of course, leaning down to Stan. You look like you know the world of fish, says Pancho. You look like you could almost be a fish yourself. Would you like... But then he suddenly turns away and reaches out to grab a little boy standing close by, a boy who's eaten a sandwich. Or oh, you, he says, you look like a mischievous kind of boy. Am I right? The boy can't speak, but the man with him says, Ah, you're right, Mr. Perrily, he's a mischievous kind of lad. Daddy, cries the boy. He tries to pull away from Pancho, but he can't. He gasps and giggles and groans at Pancho's side. He's a little monster, Mr. Perrelli, says the father. He's a total terror. Me and the missus has often said he should get fed to Pancho Pirelli's piranhas. Then let us do it, says Pancho. He leads the boy towards the tank and he takes his sandwich from him. What is this, he says. A sausage sandwich, says the boy. Pancho holds the sandwich up to the glass forms of the tank. The fish rush towards it. Their jaws open and shut and their eyes glare viciously through the glass. The poor eagle fish are hungry, little boy, says Pancho. Shall I feed them your sausage sandwich? Aye, Mr. Pirelli, whispers the boy. There's a ladder fixed to the side of the tank. Pancho steps into it, holding the sandwich in his hand. The fish inside swim upwards as Pancho climbs. The crowd laughs as the boy runs back to his dad. Pancho reaches the top of the ladder. He leans over the tank. He smiles and lets the sandwich fall. And his terrifying fish rush to it and savage it. And there is tumult in the tank and silence in the crowd. Stan's heart thunders. He's never seen anything so wild. And all for the sake of a sausage sandwich. What, he wonders, would those piranhas do to a boy? Thank you very much, David. My heart was thundering. First of all, I wonder if you could just tell me, how did this book and your collaboration come about? I wrote a play years ago about a, a man who turns his house into a fish canning factory and makes his, uh, his nephew work for him. And that's how the book, how the boy who swam the piranha be, begins. But then the true generative was when I went to a circus in Italy a few years ago, and it was a really kind of wacky sort of circus, um, a wonderful, strange thing. And at the interval, they said there was a special performance for anyone who was brave enough to see it and who would pay an extra five euros. So my daughter and I looked at each other and we said, yeah, we want to go. So we went past the curtains and then behind the curtains, there was a trailer covered in a, in a curtain. And they turned and said, are you brave enough to watch this? And we said, yes, we are. And then he drew back the curtain and there was a, uh, the tank was full of piranhas. There was a shoal of piranhas inside this tank. And the man threw a chicken in, a dead chicken. And of course the piranha ate up the chicken. And then he put some goggles on and climbed up a ladder at the side and stood at the side of the piranha tank. And he said, do you think I'm brave enough to dive into the tank of piranhas? And everybody said, nah, you're not, are you? He said, do you want me to dive into the tank of piranhas? In Italian. <laughs> and we said, no, no, no. But of course we went, yes, yes, yes. And he did, he dived into the tank full of piranhas. <laughs> what happened to him? I think he survived. <laughs> but in the book, uh, Pancho Pirelli says that, um, that there is the danger that one day will be the day of doom. 
that that may be the day when the piranhas decide to turn on the person who was brave enough to swim with them. When they're extra hungry. When they're extra hungry. Maybe that's why I fed them the chicken first. And the sandwich. And, <laughs> and the, the sandwich. The sandwich mm. and the boot, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And Oliver, how, how did you get involved with this book? Deirdre, uh, uh, who is the editor, uh, approached me. We met in London when I was over on a trip, and, and she just said, I want you to have a read of this. And, and I knew David's work, and, and uh, I have not uh, illustrated many other people's work actually the only the only uh person i've collaborated with before was john boyne um but i've, I've been shown work and then I've, that i've said no to and, and it just didn't feel right and and by the time i got to the bottom of the first page i knew that this is something that i could bring my illustrations to and, and give it an um, an extra life and and it just felt totally right what was it about it in particular that, that really grabbed you well, I mean, the, David just described that circus, and, and funny, I was thinking of that's exactly what drew me to the, his description, drew me to the book. It's a strange and wonderful thing. So there's a magicness to it that is um, anchored in the, the everydayness of the language and the order, or ordinariness of the way things are described. And it just and because of that, I think the, the, the fantastical picture it paints is, is even more special. I read it three times, once just for enjoyment, once uh, to jot places where I think an illustration would work and then the third time to to test that again. And I think there is, when you collaborate, you want to have a sense that there's a kind of shared vision, a shared imagination, that something about the roots of the way you see the world are, you're linked somehow. So I felt really positive about Oliver. The quote's something about the essence of the, the book, the... Um, as I said, the kind of ordinariness of it, mm-hmm. but the strange strangeness. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that we both kind of explore in our art, is that... Um, the ordinary is the thing that really contains the, the wacky and the miraculous and the extraordinary. Normally, I don't like to just repeat. Like in my picture books, for example, the words do a very different thing than the illustrations. And uh, this, is the, this is really one of the first times I've, I've sort of illustrated a book from a normal point of view where I'm taking little bits of the story and illustrating them. Because um, uh, even, even with uh, John Boyne's first book that I illustrated, I, I was lifting out um, almost things as, as pieces of evidence uh, and, and laying them there on the table for inspection in a totally different way than, than the, the manuscript was written. But because of the, the bizarre nature in which David was explaining this world, because I was doing the normal and almost predictable way of illustrating it, it still wasn't repeating what was happening in the book because he didn't go take a normal route to really describing anything. So it's, I felt that this actually would be a, a very strong a team, essentially, the, these, these words and these pictures doing fairly separate things to, to combine and create a whole. And there's, there's a very strong, I feel, sense of timelessness in the book. It's, it's in the name, Stanley and Ernie, and it's in the, the fairground. When I set off writing it, and it began with the house turning into a fish canning factory. <laughs> and it takes a kind of a very, almost like a historic, a real historic event, the closure of some shipyards, so that the man who makes the fish canning factory. When things like the shipyards closed and the coal mines closed, the world suddenly became very surreal because you depended on certain things and things had been very solid and very grounded. Suddenly those things were gone and the world just was open for all kinds of grabs. So as soon as I began to write it, and it, the, you know, the, the house turned into a fish canning factory and then he canned some goldfish, the book almost inevitably went into this kind of, it's not another world, but it's a world which is a kind of bizarre version of the real world. And uh, at the heart of it is what seemed to me this very ordinary lad who encounters people who themselves are very ordinary. It's just that they do <laughs> extraordinary things. You know, um, Dostoevsky, who runs a, a hookah duck school, 
stall and Natasha's mother who's off in Siberia dancing and uh, Tickle Peter who's never laughed for whatever it is, I can't remember, 10 years or something. It's almost like you know a book has its own trajectory and once you find the true trajectory for a book, it leads you into the world that it needs to go to and that's how it developed for me. It went into this very bizarre variation on reality. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of had 60s postcards at the back of my mind when yeah, I was yeah. creating the scene for it. And in a way, there's a, there's a sort of a timelessness about that because mm. still that sort of that visual style almost becomes the cliche for mm. for a lot of standard ways of observing things. And so that, that was sort of at the back of my mind and kind of when it was set. I don't know how accurate that is or isn't. There's also the tension between the, the, the surrealness, the fantastic elements and the the daft team who are trying to clamp down on daftness. I mean, you might have to explain a bit about Yeah, the daft, daft team come from the... <laughs> Department for the Abolition of Fishy Things, and they are run by Clarence P. Clapp Esquire, who sees it as his duty in life to uh, to get rid of all daftness and to cancel out all fishiness. <laughs> <laughs> and in some ways, Clarence felt quite realistic to me because, you know, the world's full of people who want to tell, stop other people from enjoying themselves and just having a good time. Um, so Clarence is kind of um, an extreme version of... Um, you know, the kind of thought police and the fun police. It's interesting, you know, um, I have a young daughter. And as she was growing up, she was amazed by the fact that there were people in the world who didn't want people to sing and didn't want people to dance. And so it has been something really wrong. I think it's time to move on to a question from one of our, our site members. And this is a question from Charlie, who wants to know, David, what made you want to start writing books? And Oliver, what made you want to start illustrating books? Well, I mean, I suppose I never really stopped illustrating books. I love that the Picasso quote where he says, everybody's born an artist. The trick is remembering how to when you grow up. Yeah, I've always drawn pictures and I just kept doing it. Funnily enough, I fell into books by accident because um, I had considered myself for a long time a painter. And I still, I still do that. And something that was... Uh, intended to be a sketch for a painting and then a series of paintings ended up becoming a picture book because the, the, that platform, that the device of a book is the really the perfect marriage of words and pictures together and storytelling has always been a very important part of my cultural upbringing and so it just it was a very natural fit and once I discovered that and uh, I was very easily able to just switch my mind and all these things that previously would have uh, been executed as a piece of art, but it was very easy to just turn them into stories and picture books and very, very enjoyable. And I would say much the same. You know, People say to writers, when did you start writing? But the question should be to other people, when did you stop writing? And one of the kind of joys of writing for young people is that they're all writers, um, that you're kind of sharing a writing community as soon as you begin to, to write for young people. I always wanted to write from where I was very small. Um, I had an uncle who was a writer. He was never published. None of his work was ever published. He wrote poems that were never published, plays that were never published, but he didn't give a damn. And um, it was great for me to have an uncle who wrote and wrote and loved writing and talked to me about stories. And um, he was a huge inspiration to me. So I drew strength from that and um, also from where I grew up, the ordinariness and the strangeness and the beauty of where I grew up. Uh, Lottie has a question for you, David, but I think, Oliver, you might want to chip in as well. Um, It's a really interesting question. She says, Last year I read My Name is Minna and I loved it. While I was reading it, it I sometimes felt as though I was Minna. I would like to know your opinion about education in 2012. I went to a good primary school and I'm enjoying middle school, but I understand perfectly how Minna felt about school. Grandma told me that the quotation... 
How can a bird that is born for joy sit in a cage and sing comes from William Blake's Songs of Innocence. So I looked it up and read the whole poem. Sometimes I feel that teachers are only thinking about particular targets that they have set for us, so that if I have tried really hard to write a good story, all they talk about is whether I've used powerful adjectives. Like Minna, my stories sometimes get a life of their own and I forget my original plan. So do you think that modern education stifles children too much? Smart kid. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of the time it does. Um, and I think there's, there's bound to be a tension in, you know, as soon as you kind of standardise education, there's bound to be a tension between the creativity and the need to kind of mechanise it. But people always seem to want to go back to over-mechanising things. Um, and Mina certainly taken the route of saying close down the schools, you know, break open the cages. What I do think is that I do quite a lot of work in schools. I was in a school the other day where they're doing fantastic work and using books as a springboard for drama, for art, for science, for all kinds of activities. But a lot of the time they work in, in a kind of a culture in which politicians can't allow that because there's this great fear in this country of politicians appearing to be soft. Just the language they use to describe education, like driving up standards, you know, it's just awful kind of vocabulary to use when you're talking about children and their need to learn. You know, I think that children are nat- naturally creative, that um, they learn naturally, they understand stories, they are, as Oliver says, that natural artists, I really believe that, but they're always forcing, trying to damp it down, saying, no, you can't do this, you can't be allowed to be so free. And I'm not saying that everything just needs to be really free and really hung out, but I mean, the way I write couldn't be accommodated within a curriculum. And, you know, I work a lot with teachers as well. Teachers are dying to be set free from a lot of the restrictions that are imposed on them by by people like Michael Gove. You know, Michael Gove wanting to go back to a kind of system of all levels and hearkening back to a supposed golden age of education, which I lived through. I mean, I think that schools now are streets ahead of how they were when I went to school. Teachers are centuries ahead. Children are much more switched on. There's all this rubbish about you know, how terrible children are, how they don't read anymore. And these people should come and meet the children that we meet. Mm-hmm. Because the children that we meet aren't given a press, they aren't given the, the kind of recognition that they need. And the teachers that I meet are, aren't as well. There's this kind of denial of the kind of natural optimism and artisticness of, mm-hmm. of children and teachers, which I think is a... A terrible thing and that's what Mina is speaking out against and obviously our correspondent who asked that question yeah. is feeling the same kind of things and what would William Blake have said you know yeah, the, my, my dad has just retired from being a teacher his whole life and he's always said something very very interesting that he believes the basic structure of of education system here is is a throwback from uh, the industrial revolution when people were prepared for the monotony of factory work and says the two most important things that a human being learns how to do is how to walk and how to talk the first thing you're told when you get into school is sit down and shut up because there must be something inherently wrong with that I've just got time for one last quick question which is from bookworm 90 who has um read an early copy of the book and wants to know what is in black pop this is the drink that stan has, which apparently tastes like blackberries and raspberries at the same time. I had in my mind that it was the, 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 the cheap Coca-Cola that comes from Mexico that you sometimes get in, uh, <laughs> in New York where they use real sugar instead of corn syrup. <laughs> this deliciousness where they can't be quite described. <laughs> I think it's similar. I'd never really thought about it. I thought it was black pop. What is it? But it actually, I think it's based on, uh, we used to go to a, a little shop in Gateshead, Gateshead High Street. And they used to sell their own special sarsaparilla, and it was very black, and you got it in little bottles. 
And I never realised till now that's where it comes from. And I remember lifting the bottle to my mouth and and it had this weird kind of deliciousness that was really hard to describe. What's it like Is it like an aniseed? Is that? Yeah, am I it was aniseed. It like was also a bit, yeah, like root beer, but okay. something else. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Raspberries and blackberries, apparently. Raspberries. <laughs> and it's and it's such a <laughs> Hi, I'm Simon Hattonstone. I'm a Guardian journalist and I occasionally write books that are not read by many people. Let me tell you about some of the great advice from those who really know how to do it. Top name authors that you can read in a new Guardian book called Write. It's brilliant, funny, perverse, bonkers and wise. If it sounds like writing, then I rewrite, says Elmore Leonard. There's an Enright for despairing writers Remember, the first 12 years are the worst. So, don't put off that dream of winning the Booker Prize any longer. Get inspired by our new Guardian book, Write. You can get yours for half price, £6.50, using promo code PODCAST. To order, visit guardian.co.uk slash bookshop. Anytime up to the end of October. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.